I really feel like romance being built so much on things like tropes does help normalize all the different kinds of normality. Welcome to School for Writers, where we help you ditch that starving, tortured artist cliche and thrive. No more struggling over whether your story is good enough or wondering if your voice deserves to be heard. It's time to step into the power of telling your story to the world. I'm your host, Lauren Marie Fleming, and I am a book-obsessed, queer, fat, witchy, divinely loud woman. And I know what it's like to have society tell you to sit down and shut up. But I'm here to tell you that you've been silenced for far too long. School for Writers was created to help you push through doubt and fear so you can stop procrastinating and start writing. Because the world needs your story now more than ever. Welcome to School for Writers. Let's get to it. Are you struggling to find time to sit your butt in that chair and write? You're about to hear from Talia Hibbert, who has written 19 books in her 20s. It's amazing. But that can kind of feel a little overwhelming. So before you go and listen to that, it's super inspiring, super exciting. I want to tell you about something that's going to help you sit your butt in the chair and write your book. And that is my Write More Challenge. For 10 minutes a day, for 10 days, I'm going to challenge you to sit your butt in the chair and create the physical and mental space in your life that you need to write. So go join my Write More Challenge at writemorechallenge.com and spend the next 10 days, spending 10 minutes a day, jumpstarting your writing routine. Once again, that's at writemorechallenge.com. And as always, that link is in your show notes. Have you ever read a book and you felt less alone in the world? Have you ever read a book and you felt more worthy of love as you were and more hopeful, like you could get your happily ever after as well? Well, that's how I felt when I first read the first in the series of The Brown Sisters by Talia Hibbert, Get Alive Chloe Brown. Chloe Brown has chronic illness and still found love. And at the time I read it, I was having a massive flare up of my chronic illness. And I felt like my body was rejecting me. So everyone else would reject my body. And to see somebody who was having a chronic illness flare up, find love still felt so grounding and beautiful to me. And then I read Take a Hint, Danny Brown. And all of a sudden, I felt again like I was seen. Here was somebody who one of the characters was really dedicated to a career, and that made her feel like she couldn't find romance and love. And the other character had anxiety and grief from losing loved ones, and that made them feel like they weren't worthy of love. And seeing them find love made me feel like I could find love. So needless to say, when I had a chance to interview Talia Hibbert, I jumped on it. Because today, March 9th, her book, Act Your Age, Eve Brown, comes out, the third in the Brown Sisters. And not only did that mean that I got to hang out with Talia and talk with her, because I've been wanting to do that for a really long time, but I also got an advanced copy of the book. So I was here for it. I was super, super excited. And it is a beautiful book. And Talia is a beautiful human. And I am so, so, so excited to bring her on this episode. Today, we're going to talk about trusting yourself as a writer. We're going to talk about how romance is an amazing genre and absolutely doesn't deserve the scorn it gets is actually one of the best ways to like make a living and find joy in life. And we're going to talk about 
building a scaffolding around a genre, how a genre, writing within a genre can really help you build up and normalize what might be considered otherness. The importance of finding your voice and talking about your voice and trusting that your story matters. It is a beautiful interview and I am so excited to share it with you. So enjoy this interview with Talia Hibbert. Welcome, welcome, Talia Hibbert, to the School for Writers podcast. I'm a huge fan, so I'm going to try to not fangirl too much during this interview. I would love for you, I just did your formal intro, but I'd love to hear who you are, like who you are in this world and what you create and how you exist in it. Thank you so much. That is really kind of you, and thank you for having me on here. I'm Talia Hibbert, as you said. I am a writer of what I like to call sexy, diverse romance. And I just really love, love stories and anything that makes people feel warm and fuzzy inside and gets them wriggling around in their chair with excitement. I hope I'm not the only one who does that. Um, No, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) And I also, you know, especially want to create that feeling for marginalized people who maybe don't get it as much as we deserve. So, you know, adding to the body of work that kind of uplifts people like me and other people on the margins is something that I really enjoy. Mm, I love that so much. I want to delve into that, but my first question that I have for you is why writing? Gosh, well, I'm not very good at other things. (laughs) 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 You know, um, some people are multi-talented and then there's people like me who have one thing (laughs) (laughs) and I'm sticking with my one thing. Um, Writing is just my best form of communication it's the only way that I can express myself that feels the closest to the way I am in my head Mm. so that's why writing (laughs) I feel like in romance in this world of tropes of stereotypes it can be really hard to make otherness feel normal and I'm gonna actually I'm gonna do this I'm gonna quote you back to yourself In your latest novel, which I'm super, super excited to talk about today, Act Your Age, Eve Brown, which actually comes out the day that this podcast airs, so I'm super excited about that. (laughs) Jacob, who has autism, talks about somebody comes up to him and makes a reference to him being Spock. And he says he didn't appreciate Spock comments. He'd received a lot of them over his lifetime, and he knew exactly what they were supposed to imply. And they made him want to throttle people before sitting them down for a long and detailed chat on why the world would be a much better place if they stopped congratulating themselves on being normal and started to accept that there were countless different normals and Jacob's kind was just as fine as everyone's else. And I like, I almost teared up right now reading that. Like with that, I feel encompasses what you're doing with romance. You're showing that normal is broad and normal is normal and everybody is a form of normal and letting people who live on the margins, like you said, feel more normal. So my question for you is, do you think that the formulaicness of romance, the you have to have a happily ever after, you have to have the romance be the main plot line, there are these tropes that we work within. Do you think that actually helps you? Is that a help helper or a hindrance in normalizing what other people might consider otherness? I'm so glad you brought that up because I have strong feelings about that. And in short, hit me. Yes, (laughs) I love this. I do. I really feel like romance being built so much on things like tropes does help normalize all the different kinds of normality because 
you know, I, I read mostly romance and I pretty much always have. So I don't have an amazing knowledge of other genres, but I feel like romance and I think other people definitely perceive romance to be built really strictly on formula. And that's always felt like a comfort to me because when you have that kind of scaffolding, that's how you climb to ridiculous heights. Mm -hmm. You can't do new and wild things and do them, I think, in a compelling way that that really hits a note with most people unless you've got that kind of tried and true scaffolding that exists because we've all been we've all had those beats bred into us right like when they talk about stories that are really similar from culture to culture even in cultures that technically have different ways of storytelling it's because certain emotional beats hit all of us in the same way because we all experience these emotions and romance is built so heavily on beats and tropes that are tightly linked with emotion so yeah, I think that is why it's so easy and so fun to widen what normality means when you're writing romance, because you have like these familiar tropes and that framework allows you to introduce what to some people might be unfamiliar and also allows you to kind of validate the people who know it's normal, but are maybe told that it's not normal and they get to see themselves in that trope and be like, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm me and they're them and we're the same because you know, we count. So that's one of the reasons I love romance and I love tropes. I love that idea that, that it's like a strong scaffolding. I'm thinking about how we talk about the sauna in writing worlds as there's freedom in this form that's really strict. In fact, I was thinking about when I was thinking about asking this question, I was thinking about uh, Mrs. What's it in A Wrinkle in Time when she said about the sonnet, you're given the form, but you have to write the sonnet yourself. So I think that people think that romance is easy because here's this, it's like laid out for you, you know the ending, they end up together. But I don't think it's actually that simple. And I think you've done such a great job at crafting beautiful books. I mean, there's times I don't have it in this book because I have this weird thing about defiling books or writing in books. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I have my eBooks of the first two Brown Sister books are like highlighted, highlighted of these beautiful phrases that you use. So I want to know, do you have formal writing or um, like formal writing uh, classes that you've taken or a formal writing degree? Or is this something that you've just practiced as an art, practice building that scaffolding? I do have an English degree. I, I went to school to study law because everyone says you can't make money being a writer. And my parents were like, you're not studying English. Uh, we don't want you to die starving in a ditch. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I really hated law so much that I just switched my course after a year. So I do have an English degree. And one thing that made me really happy was that I had an option to do English and creative writing, which not all universities offered. And I found those classes really helpful in particular because I was lucky enough to get a lecturer who wasn't a genre snob and wasn't anti-romance. And when I was like, I read romance novels and I'm going to write romance, he was like, cool, do you. <laughs> so shout out to Jonathan Taylor. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I feel like what I learned, most of all, it helped me kind of trust myself. I feel like a lot of the time, a lot of people are really great writers, but if they don't have any kind of formal training or even just a class, they feel like, well, surely my instinct on how to do this isn't actually right. There must be a right way and I need to learn it. And therefore what I'm trying to do must be wrong. Mm -hmm. But actually the more I learned, the more it reinforced that 
you should go with your gut because that's how you find your unique voice. And also you shouldn't underestimate how much you've learned by just reading and enjoying what you've read. Mic drop. I was, <laughs> I was lucky enough to be able to do that. But also I feel like, you know, it was very freeing and very helpful, but it's not necessary for everyone. Yeah. I get so many people who've devoured books their whole life and they're like, but I don't have a degree in writing. And I'm like, who cares? You know <laughs> writing. Like you were talking about, you know, those beats, you've learned the beats, you've learned. Exactly. You know it so well. And I think, I think we often, I, I agree that sometimes it's important to like look outside your genre for inspiration, but I think we don't value genre writers because we don't think that they're literary and we all like there's these gatekeepers that have decided that this one style of writing is valid and yet romance is one of like makes billions of dollars is like why those publishing houses that can make those literary books like actually can survive is because romance (laughs) makes them billions of dollars a year so why do you think i mean this is such a loaded question and i'm gonna go ahead and ask it even though it's it's one of my my least favorite ideas but guilty pleasures like i don't believe in guilty pleasures in fact i had a whole business for a while that the goal was taking the guilty out of pleasure and i just want to know why do you think that we think of romance as trashy or guilty or we have these ideas of it being lesser than when in reality it's one of the bigger parts of the publishing industry it's misogyny that's all it is it's just it's so beautifully simple misogyny (laughs) beautifully simple yeah like even you know Jane Austen now is considered literature because she died and then some dudes got to pretend that they discovered her importance and present it to everyone as a proper thing but you know when she was just trying to have fun writing love stories I don't think it was considered quite as impressive and serious as it is now and I think you can apply that principle to a lot of romance authors writing today like for example historical romance in particular is really maligned because of the whole bodice ripper stereotype but if you read a Beverly Jenkins novel like try and tell me that that couldn't be a set text for for example a degree of Mm. course it does like it's the people are writing at that level but it's not going to be accepted because to accept it would be to undermine, you know, so many patriarchal norms that it would open a whole can of worms that certain people do not want to address. So I think that's why romance is consistently undervalued. But also I don't care about those people. Yes. Okay. So first <laughs> off, there were three great, great points in there. One, just like simple, easy misogyny is the reason why if, if men were, if it was like porn, men, you know, would be totally devouring it. Like if it, it's just a, it's a, it has this connotation that it's a woman's thing and therefore it's less than two, we look back at people like Jane Austen and we think they were great, even though they were like not vilified, but put down and seem, it seems simple and littler in their lifetime. And three, I don't care that that was it. I don't care. Like, (laughs) That doesn't, I'm not writing for the people who think that romance is bad. I'm writing for the people like me who devour it. So, you know, I know that obviously when we say misogyny as well, we mostly think of women, but like all marginalized genders, I think, are the ones who are being kind of blanket put down when people talk about quote unquote women's things, which doesn't really exist, but you know, and that's, so it's not just misogyny, it's all the other kind of intersected gender stuff. (laughs) 
thank you for bringing that up. I really appreciate that because I think that that we often talk about misogyny and we forget like transphobia and the other like non-binary phobia that exists within that. So thank you. I appreciate you bringing that up. So you've written, if my, I am a writer, not a mathematician. So if my math <laughs> is correct, you've written books? I don't know. I mean, it depends on what you count. It depends on what you count. I always say 17 because I've removed some books from the world. Um. <laughs> As one does. Okay. Why did you remove them? I love that because so many of my clients, so many of the people who come to me, they want to tell a story, but they're so afraid that if they put it out there in the world, it's out there forever and they can't ever take it back. So tell me about, before I get into all the rest, now I want to know, you've removed these books. Why and how? Um. <laughs> So my, my first two books that I self-published, they were like a, a novelette and then a novella. And it was very much needing to prove to myself that I could finish something and that I could publish something. And neither of them ever made very much money, which was fine. I kind of needed to do it to encourage myself. And I was so happy with them and so proud of them. But then as I grew more confident and I was able to write more and more and really settle into who I wanted to be as a writer and what I wanted to create. I realized that those early books where I was finding my feet just didn't fit with my work as a whole. So I just got rid of them. I took them down from everywhere. And I put a little note on Goodreads saying, you know, you can't get these books anymore. Sorry, don't email me about it. You don't want them anyway. Um, and that was that. <laughs> I love that. I love that because I think so often why people don't start writing is because they're afraid that they're going to be bad at it at the beginning. And then people are only going to ever judge them for how bad they were when they first started. And I think about, I have a law degree. We didn't, we expected beginning lawyers to be bad. We expect beginning accountants to like mess up, but for some reason we think artists need to start out being profound and perfect. <laughs> and I love that you just started and that's so inspiring for me. And I hope it's inspiring for people listening to just start as well on whatever they're working on, on whatever they want to try to do. Okay, so you've written 19 books on romance, 17, depending on how we count it. <laughs> so I'm going to assume that you know how to sit your butt in the chair and get to writing. So are you a, and you know, <laughs> like we all laugh, I laugh at this. Are you one of those people who's like, okay, I'm going to be like Stephen King. I'm going to get up. I'm going to do the exact same routine, writing routine every single day. This is what I write. This is what I do. Or are you somebody who's like, you'll be long periods of time where you don't write and then you finish a book in a weekend or somewhere in between? I'm definitely closer to the former than the latter. I feel like for me, for my personality type, and this applies to everything I do, not just writing, discipline and routine really helps me. So it seemed sensible to apply that to my writing. And most of the time I do get up and the first thing I do is write. And then once I've had my lunch, that's like my writing period over. And that's how I think of it to myself. And I do that like four days a week or five days a week. But at the same time, I've learned that things aren't always going to work in the exact same way. So if you are getting the feeling to break your routine, to do something slightly different, whether it's because you need a rest or because, you know, something's hit you and you need to write now, even if it's not writing time, you've got to take advantage of those moments or give yourself grace in those moments as well. So I have like a vague routine, but I try to be flexible. I like that idea that it ends at lunch because then I can just eat earlier if I'm out of inspiration. <laughs> I'm like, okay, lunch is three hours earlier today than it normally is. 
makes you feel better as well right also you're like okay cool I'm gonna go off and eat now so at least I at least if I love or didn't love what I did that might that might change my lunch opinion (laughs) so I want to know so you there's a there's a stigma in traditional publishing against people who've self-published and yet you went from self-publishing to traditional publishing and I want to know one are you still planning on self-publishing as well I know lots of romance authors who do a little bit of both And two, how you kind of made that transition, like how that transition, both the logistics of that transition, but also personally, what it's like to start publishing with a team versus on your own. I feel like I definitely know the stigma you're talking about, but I think in romance, because indie romance is leading the curve in so many arenas that maybe there's less of that stigma because indies have just proven that they know what they're doing. I'm saying they instead of we because I never really hit those indie heights. But but I know what's out there and it's very impressive. (laughs) And it it was kind of a strange transition to make because it really is very different. You know, writing is obviously very solitary. But then when you're you're indie and you're having to do all the jobs with the publisher yourself and choose what to do on your own and who to contract out for various jobs, that makes the entire business very solitary. Whereas when you're traditionally publishing, it suddenly becomes very collaborative. And one problem I had was um, because I'd published so much, people maybe assumed that I had a certain baseline level of knowledge. And they also assumed obviously that if I didn't know something, I would say so. Unfortunately, I do not say so because I get shy. (laughs) So a lot of the time people were saying things to me and I was like, yep, got it. And I had no idea what was happening or what that meant. So I had to go off and frantically Google. So I feel like I made the transition harder than it needed to be (laughs) because I was scared that if I betrayed my ignorance, I would seem way less serious and professional. But overall, you know, now that I've gotten over that and I'm treating my collaborators as collaborators and accepting that they are happy to help me or inform me of things, it's much easier. It's, it's fine, really. And it's nice not to have to do everything. Yeah, I bet. I bet. I've done a lot of self-publishing and I'm excited for the days when I'm traditionally publishing so I can have that support system as well. But I also still love self-publishing and I think it's a beautiful way to, to get your story out there and not have to worry about the gatekeepers saying whether it deserves to be out there or not. I love that you brought up the heights of indie romance because again, I think this is an example. So many people are asking me, okay, I want to, I want to self-publish so I can build my career to traditionally publish, or I want to do all these different things. And I'm like, go look at how romance authors are doing it. They are setting the example of how You can always tell what's going to happen next in the traditional publishing world by seeing what romance is doing from diversity to, to self-publishing, to traditionally publishing, to this whole like world of eBooks and everything. And I just, I just, and to sitting your butt in the chair and actually busting out the work, doing the work. So I, I just love looking to romance authors. They're impressive. And when people ask me about money and publishing, like I know millionaire romance authors. I don't know millionaire literary authors. I know people who've like struggled for years and had it. And the New York times book review said it was the best book of the year. And they sold like five copies, <laughs> maybe not five, but oh you know what I mean? Like they've struggled and struggled and struggled because so much of the, I, the ideas that we have around what is good and bad writing includes this idea that we have that 
you talked about like dying in a ditch, putting your head in the oven, that you have to struggle through it, that it has to be this painful, tortured experience. But I, I love watching romance writers thrive. So you said that you haven't gotten to the like big heights of those indie authors, but you have gotten some pretty great acclaimed heights. In fact, Entertainment Weekly said Hibbert is a force more incredible than you can comprehend. And, but more than that, I think I love personally what Haven Girma, and forgive me if I'm saying that wrong, just recently said on um, her Instagram about you. Are you familiar with her? She, yeah, yeah she's, she's said, amazing. She's amazing. She's amazing. Yeah. And she's writing a book and I hope one day I can have her on the podcast. Um, she said the relationships thrive, not in your books, the relationships thrive, not despite disability, but by, and not by overlooking disability, but by fully accepting their loved one body, mind, and heart. And that I feel like, like take all the other praise. Like that's such a beautiful thing. You, you do have this beautiful way of making it almost like you've created this world where the people who wouldn't accept them have already been vetted out. Like the people in the world have been accepted. And, and how do you, how do you balance that? Like, I want to write a world of reality and show the experiences of somebody with a like Chloe has chronic illness Eve and Eve Brown we talk about you talk about autism on both sides of the characters and then there's grief and anxiety in Danny Brown book and how do you normalize this while also recognizing the realities of the situation of somebody who is othered in society or might be marginalized or might be dealing with these things that society doesn't always accept when I'm writing, I spend a lot of time thinking about micro worlds in a lot of different contexts. Mm. And I, I googled what that meant the other day because I've been using the word and I was like, wait, does it even mean what I think it means? And it does, but it also means like microscopic stuff, but I'm not talking about <laughs> We're not talking about <laughs> molecules here, folks. <laughs> so when I'm when I'm creating a series, I like to think of that as like one layer of a world. So there's the actual world, but now I'm writing these books in this world and I figure out the tone of the world and that's the tone of the series and then within that I also have the characters and their world so you know the first world that the series exists in is a bit more like reality you know bad things happen there and there are bad people in it but then each of the characters has their own smaller world as well that's made up of their family or their friends and the person that they're eventually going to end up with and that very inner world is the happy ending where they're, they're happy and safe because no matter what happens outside, they have the support that they need to get through it. So I feel like when I'm writing, I'm writing characters who have had something happen to them in like the outer world that has maybe not been so great. And that's the reality that a lot of us can relate to. But now they're on a journey moving towards the safer inner world where they're surrounded by the people who are going to protect them from what's out there so that's kind of how i have people in the book who are nice but also bad things have happened to them <laughs> i love that i love that concept that's just a great concept like as a writing technique in general that you just outlined so all you writers out there listen to that technique go back scroll back hear that again <laughs> and also it's a life it's a life change right it's a life movement i remember when i first read chloe brown I was struggling with some serious body issues. Like I was very, very chronic. My chronic illness was flared. It hurt to walk. I was in so much pain. 
And to just see somebody also whose like body was flaring up and who was in pain and who had trouble walking because of that pain, find love was so inspiring to me. I was like, oh yeah, okay, cool. Just because I see my body is revolting right now, doesn't mean that someone else wouldn't love me in this state. And I think that that's so powerful. I feel like also in Danny Brown, seeing somebody who's grieving, I lost my brother to cancer and seeing somebody grieving and having that anxiety over it and the anger and all the emotions that come up and having someone love them. And in Eve Brown, having seen somebody with like particular particularities about their personality loved. I mean, there's just so, there's so much love in this, including I think from the matriarch down. So I would love to talk a little bit about the way that you created this world where there are these three women who come from this family line that starts with this amazing grandmother character. And what do you, what role do you think Gigi plays in allowing the girls? So for, for people who haven't read them yet, Gigi was famous for something and I can't quite like a model or I can't quite remember what. She has all sorts of things. Right? She's like, she's like famous for being beautiful and wonderful and fabulous. Yeah. Right. And I love that. I love that so much. And in what way did creating a character that taught these women and created safety nets for these women to be themselves matter in the story structure to you? Was it accidental? Was it the beginning of the structure? Like where did that come in when you were writing these? I feel like when I was writing this series, Chloe came first and I spent a lot of time kind of thinking about her and developing her. And in that development is how I built the rest of the family around her. For example, I kind of thought she's like an older sister personality type. And then from there, it was like, okay, well, who are her younger sisters? And that's how even Danny came to be. And like you said, once I decided that we were going to have these three women and they were all going to be, you know, the way they are, maybe not typical but completely okay with it I was like okay why and it came very naturally to me to think that it would be you know someone in their family a role model and a protector because that kind of reflects the way that I've grown up I have my mum and then I have two grandmas and a great grandma or I, I did when I was growing up and they all looked after me and they were all very good friends and that really impacted how I saw myself and how I built relationships with other people. And so I thought, they're gonna have the same thing, the Brown sisters. <laughs> and I knew that it needed to be someone who was really outrageous and unapologetically themselves in order to encourage that in the three sisters as well. So from there, I kind of came up with Gigi who could not be any more herself. <laughs> uh, Gigi's one of my favorite characters and I feel like I just want to hang out at Gigi's house and do yoga <laughs> with her. <laughs> That's great. So I have my last couple of questions for you. And one is what is a book that changed your life that has changed your life in some way? And you don't have to pick the ultimate life-changing one, just a book that has changed your life. Oh no. <laughs> Whenever anyone asks about books I've read, I have never read a book ever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I think when I was younger, I I got books at school from the age appropriate area of the library, but I read a lot. It was pretty much the only thing I did. So then I went to the librarian and I was like, "Can I read the older books?" And she was like, "Well, 
you're not supposed to, but I'll give you a book from that section. And if you enjoy it and you can read it and tell me, and then I'll let you go on in your own. So she gave me Jane Eyre and it was really big and it was like olden days language. And I was like, oh, I can't read this. But then I decided I was going to read it. Um, so I finished it and she was like, okay, you can go into the older section. And I was like, thank you. And I guess that changed my life because then I could read books I wasn't supposed to be reading. I love that. Especially like a kid getting through Jane Eyre. I, I can barely make it through that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I, I'm a bad romance reader. I've never read it. <laughs> Can't bring myself to read like older language books. So the fact that you could as a kid is very impressive. And then my last question for you is, what is a book that you would like to read but not write? Oh gosh, um, like can it be something that like an imaginary book or something? Yeah, that read or- yeah. Oh. Just like what's a book? I I think there's so many. It's one of my favorite questions because I like to see, I think you're a romance genre writer. Is there something that you want to read that you haven't, that you're like, no, that's not for me to write, but I'd love to read it. Absolutely. And like saying this is very much inspired by the work of people like Tasha Suri, who writes fantasy, like high fantasy romance, which I love. And I can't remember the author, but the author of Gideon the Ninth, which I also loved, which is not a romance. Basically anything that's like, super dramatic and high stakes and maybe a little bit scary I love to read it but I once tried to write something a bit like that and I genuinely upset myself like I had to stop I was sad I was nervous I was like this is not for me (laughs) I love that you brought that up because there's definitely been times I like went to go write a spy novel and I kept thinking of ways I could murder people (laughs) I was like (laughs) Maybe not healthy, <laughs> possibly like not, not safe. Um, so I love that. Like, yeah, there's sometimes I think I couldn't be Stephen King because I would scare myself. I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. Absolutely. <laughs> love that. So my actual last and final question is if people want to get in touch with you or keep in contact with you or learn more about your books, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, I have as much info as possible about my books on my website, which is taliahibbert.com. And from there, you can also sign up to my newsletter. And I send newsletters maybe twice a month. And I think that they're fun. I try to be fun. I don't know. I'm trying my best. I think they're fun. (laughs) I like being on you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, when people reply to me, I can see that. So if you have something important to say, let me know and I'll reply. Um, And then I am also on social media, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) This is the bane of writer's existence. <laughs> I am at Talia Hibbert on Twitter and on Instagram. And I have a Facebook reader group called Talia Hibbert's Hopeless Romantics. And I think that's it. I think that's all of it. Yeah. I love that. Talia Hibbert's Hopeless Romantics. I'm going to have to join. I didn't know about that. And that makes me really, really happy to hear about. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing such amazing wisdom. And I'm a huge fan of the whole Brown Sisters books. And I'm super excited that actor A.G. Brown is coming out today, the day that this podcast airs. So everybody go get a copy. If you haven't read all three, just go buy all three. Trust me, you're just going to want to devour one after another after another. (laughs) They are really, really beautifully written books. And they'll um, make y'all squirmy in your seat too, (laughs) which is very (laughs) exciting. Thank you again for coming on here. It's been amazing chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a great time. Have a great day. Bye.
For this week's book review, I'm actually gonna do three books. I'm just gonna go ahead and tell you that you need to go out and get yourself all three of the Brown Sister novels by Talia Hibbert. Today especially, you can finally get Act Your Age E. Brown, which comes out this week. So I'm super, super excited about that. So if you haven't yet read that one, go get it. But if you haven't read the Brown Sisters novels, go and grab all three. I guarantee you, guarantee or your money back, there's money in this, but guarantee you your money back. I guarantee you that you're going to love all three, that they're going to make you feel less alone in this world, more worthy of love, that they're going to get you all like kind of a little squirmy like romance does, gets you all excited and worked up. They're going to make you feel excited and joy and all the feelings. They're going to make you laugh. There's beautiful, beautiful moments, gorgeous moments where people recognize that the outside world might be mean to them and hard for them and difficult, but this right here, the world that they're creating, this inner world that they're working on with somebody else, that they're finding love within, that's real and that's safe. And it's just, they just made me feel worthy of love, y'all, and I want you to feel worthy of love too. So go out and buy all three of the Brown Sister novels right now. I have to tell you, I'm a little sad that the series is over, but Talia told me herself that she is working on a spinoff series with the Brown Sisters concept in that world. So I am so excited that there's going to be a spinoff, that we're going to have more books in this series because I devoured all of them. Like each of them I read in probably a day and a half, if that. So go out and get yourself all of the Brown Sister books by Talia Hibbert, but especially go get yourself Actor Age Eve Brown, which comes out this week. And keep your eye out for following Brown Sister spinoffs, which I am super, super excited about. You just finished another episode of the School for Writers podcast. Woohoo! Go you! Did you know that we're more than just a podcast? School for Writers is a full-service support team helping you to get your story out into the world. Here are three ways you can get even more writerly inspiration and education. Number one, subscribe. It's so easy. All you gotta do is click that little subscribe button down below wherever you listen or watch the School for Writers podcast. That not only guarantees that you don't miss another episode, but it also helps support our continuation of this show. Number two, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Pinterest at School for Writers. Every day we post helpful tips and tools like journaling prompts, reading recommendations, and live interviews with inspiring experts. Number three, visit schoolforwriters.com where you can check out past episodes, join a writing program, and get even more tips, tools, and inspiration to support your writing life. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our Write More Challenge, a 10-day program to help you jumpstart your writing routine. Thanks again for supporting School for Writers. We'll see you next episode. School for Writers is produced by me, Lauren Marie Fleming, with editing and support from Samantha Olivares. All rights reserved by Las Maestras LLC. Our music is De Lejos by Ilabamba. Check them out on Spotify. Big thanks to the team at Terrorbird and big thanks to Kristen Hoback. And of course, a massive thank you to you, the listener. Now put down this podcast already and go write. I'll see you in the next episode.